This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. All right, welcome back to another edition of In Class with Carr. I'm with Dr. Greg Carr from Howard University, Africana Studies Department Chair. Man, that's a lot. But before we get into all of that, this episode is brought to you by Aroma Theory. And you can check that out at livebetter360.com. That's livebetter, the number 360.com. Hit the shop button. Check out all of the wonderful Aroma Theory scents, including Dreamy Lavender, Tropical Paradise, Gold Shimmer, and my favorite, Vanilla Vibes. It is whipped body butter, shea butter, and it is infused with CBD that comes straight from hemp farmers in Kentucky who are black. So support black-owned hemp farmers. Get your aroma theory at livebetter360.com. Now back to Dr. Great Carr in class with Carr. Livebetter360.com. Got it written right, down. Right. And also subscribe to the channel. Yes. Give us the thumbs up and then follow Great Carr at Africana Carr on Twitter. All right. Y'all's president is out at uh, Mount Rushmore <laughs> for the 4th of July. We were going to do a whole 4th of July thing, but you were like, with those monuments, though, with those monuments, monuments that yeah. Mount Rushmore. Okay, talk to me, Dr. Carr, about what we need to know. Well, you know, as he, as you say, sis, uh, it's good to be back with you again, Professor Hunter, and uh, and with the family who continues to give us and lift us up and say, let's all keep doing this work. And And, and we always talk about this as well. You all know that when you see the two of us, when we're having our conversations, these are kind of informal conversations, as Karen says, breadcrumbs, you know, and we're just representative of the many, 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 many teachers who have done this work over the arc of the last century and a half and beyond in the United States. And so it's really heartwarming to hear from teachers who are out there, kindergarten through high school, college teachers, folks in the community saying, you know, yeah, keep going, keep going. We've been saying this. Yes, you have been saying it. So we're glad to have y'all in this conversation. And, you know, we were talking about July 4th. We know our people always take a day off and celebrate, but we've never really tied it to independence in the same way. And so we said, well, you know, rather than do a July 4th, because, you know, as you, as you say, Karen, now being black is the thing. Everybody is into it. So there's going to be plenty of July 4th critiques. People are going to read, and they should, What to the Slave is the 4th of July by Frederick Douglass, that speech he gave in Corinthian Hall in 1852. Because black people, as we talked about when we talked about Juneteenth, we used to take July 5th as a day we would use to criticize July 4th before the end of slavery. So Douglas gave that speech on the July 5th ritual in 1852. In fact, when I lived in Philadelphia, I was there for 17 years. I would, uh, on July 4th, if I was in town, I would go down to the old Pennsylvania State House, which is now, they call it Independence Hall, where they did the Constitution. And of course, now we see Hamilton is back in the news again and, and the Constitution. But I would go down there and I would carry my copy of What to the Slaves the 4th of July and read it while I was watching them. They, every July 4th- Wait, wait talk about Dr. Carr. <laughs> you have a physical copy of it, which I'm sure- Of course, I'm, I'm sure, sure. And it's easy enough, yeah. So you, what, what did it look, you had a book and you would- Oh yeah, I would carry my book. Yeah, and I mean, and it, it- To start orating in the movie. Oh, no, 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 I wouldn't go out and start no beef because you oh, know, okay. everybody going to jail at that point. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay. No, 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 I, but I, I would reread it you know, I, I usually I wouldn't drive that day. I would take the subway down and I would go and, and reread it while I was watching the scene because what Douglas narrates in 1852 was so vividly on display on July 4th in Philadelphia, the city where they made up America. In fact, 
they have a they used to have now they've got a national constitution center in fact i was there the day they dedicated the national constitution center they had the supreme court justices all came uh, almost all of them and they had one of them uh i think it was sandra day o'connor at the time who, who was off the bench i think at the time. but she pulled the curtain to, to to unveil the constitution center which sits across from independence hall but they had a huge wooden frame framing the stage this massive building and the curtain was attached to the stage and she yanked it once she yanked it again and then you saw the thing look like it was getting ready and everybody was like whoa but then the curtain came i was like wow i'm about to see the death of about a half dozen supreme court justices <laughs> but anyway but, but before the constitution center they used to do this over in front of independence hall and if you got there early enough if you were in from philly you might know this you went around the back and they would actually have the liberty bell they would bring it down. Now they have a whole pavilion for the Liberty Bell. Shout out to the black folks. These are black folks in Philadelphia who protested for years. We used to go down there. They had red, black, and green flags. We would be down there protesting because Philadelphia is also the a home of the first White House, the so-called President's House. That's where George Washington was. That's also where he had enslaved on a judge for a time, Hercules, one of his cooks, and these cats ran away. In fact, uh, what's the young sister who was at Delaware? She's not at the University of Delaware anymore. She wrote a book called Never Caught, where she talks about Own a Judge. Now, this isn't the first book on Own a Judge, but it's a book that continues in that, I'll think of her name, Erica Dunbar, Professor Erica Dunbar, good sister. Uh, book came out maybe last year, year before last. And this, that she told again the story of Own a Judge, and this is how it used to work. See, Washington and them were in Pennsylvania. By then, uh, Penn's experiment, Pennsylvania, was engaged in abolitionism. And so, but the thing was, in the enslaved state of Virginia, where you know Washington had Mount Vernon, right. you could if if you had enslaved Africans who stayed out of the slave state for X number of days or months, if they went past the deadline, you had to do something about it. You might have to free them. So what he would do, what Washington would do, is the enslaved Africans he would have him with him in Philly at the president's house. He would keep them until the week that they were up on the deadline and then send them back to Virginia to make sure that you could keep the enslavement cycle going. They stay there for a week or so and then he bring them back and the clock start again. Well, on a judge- Dred Scott, excuse me, Dred Scott, didn't he- uh, Well, it's the same principle, it, absolutely. This would have been the 18th century, 1780s, 1790s, but that's exactly right. 60 years later, you see with Dred and Harriet Scott and their two girls eventually, the whole idea was he, they were in the upper Mississippi territory in what is now Louisiana, not Louisiana, what am I saying? They were up in Minnesota, Fort Schnelling, which is still there, by the way. In fact, that's, well, anyway, the whole idea is that they were in so-called free territory. Then they come back into Missouri, and the idea is, no, nah, I was gone too long, and I should be free. And of course, the case made it to the Supreme Court, at which point Roger Taney, the, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, said no. There's nowhere in this country where you are free if we decide you're not free. I mean, for, for varying legal reasons, but this was after the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which is a whole another story. Uh, but you know, have, but I just wanted to um, underscore that because I just think it's so powerful that a person in bondage, and I keep getting this because I'm having a patent conversation with a patent lawyer about all of the patents that Black people, you know, invented in the 1800s while they were in bondage. But you know that they knew the law that. Dred Scott knew the law as a person in bondage. Oh yeah. That that you know, own a judge. That they knew the law. You know, it, it's interesting. Like, how do you how do you get that knowledge when you're 
stripped of it when it's illegal to read, you know, and yet we still found a way to know what we needed to know. Well, you know, actually now, Karen, you know what? We should, we should, as old folks in the South, you say, we should tarry on that question for a minute. This podcast is brought to you by CarShield. With all the uncertainty in the world right now, everyone's top priority is safety. And protecting your vehicle is crucial, whether you're on the front lines as an essential worker out there protesting or even making trips to the store. We rely on our cars a lot. And I actually want us to get out of debt. So hold on to your cars, pay off your car. But that also means you're going to need extended coverage. So go to CarShield. CarShield takes the worry away from car repairs. They have affordable protection plans that can save you thousands for cover repair, including computers, GPS, electronics, and more. And the people at CarShield understand payment flexibility. That's a must. Monthly payments can be customized to your needs with rates as low as $99 a month. No long-term contracts or commitments. CarShield gives you options you others won't. CarShield gives you options others won't. You can get to choose your favorite mechanic or dealership to do the work, and CarShield takes care of the rest. They also offer complimentary 24-7 roadside assistance and a rental car while yours is being fixed. CarShield has helped more than a million customers, so you drive with confidence and peace of mind knowing you got covered by America's number one auto protection company. For as low as $99 a month, you can keep your family safe and save thousands for a covered repair. Give them a call, 800-CAR-6000, mention code KAREN, or visit carshield.com, use code KAREN, K-A-R-E-N, to save 10%. That's carshield.com, code KAREN. A deductible may apply. Because the answer stares us in the face but because the history, we don't get a chance to, we don't take the opportunity to really sit and think with it, it doesn't hit us. And then when it hits us, it's like, oh, every one of those people who were in Philadelphia in the summer of 1786 and 87, who were there in 1776, who are writing these ideas, Hamilton, uh, Jefferson, James Madison, they're all debating, who's serving them their food? Who's with them at night? When Jefferson goes back to draft the Constitution, who's in the building with him? Are the enslaved Africans? One of the ways we knew the law was we were brilliant and we listened. So if you can imagine in Philadelphia, Richard Allen, Sarah Allen, Autumn Cassidy, this thing is going down and they are literally in the rooms, but as Sam Greenlee wrote in The Spook Who Sat By The Door in the novel and they made the movie, a black man, a black woman with a mop and a bucket can go anywhere and you're invisible. They're literally in the rooms. So I can't, 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 can't you imagine, there's another, there's another movie for your movie making army, uh, Karen. Can you imagine a film where black women are coming back? Yeah, this is what they're talking about today. They got this establishment clause. They saying they're gonna separate religion and politics. Really? Now how are they gonna do that? Cause before they open the session, they always praying. I mean, in other words, um, these are conversations. In fact, one of the best little articles that, that I would recommend folks get to talk about this principle of just black folk, smart black folk, Many never went to school, didn't have to go to school to exercise their natural intelligence in these contexts. Is a little article by Ralph Ellison that he wrote called The Little Man at Chihaw Station. Uh, Chihaw Station was the train station in, in Tuskegee. Because, uh, you know, Booker Washington had a lot of these white philanthropists, Baldwins, the Rockefellers, Andrew Carnegie, his friends. And so they had to build a special little railroad spur out from the main line to go to Tuskegee in parts of his rich friends to come out there and see all this good work and write him these checks that Booker T. Washington was able to get. Well, there was a little train station that they put there in Tuskegee. And Ralph Ellison went to Tuskegee as an undergrad, and he was going to be a musician. 
And he had a brilliant music teacher, her name escapes me, and I'm ashamed to say that because she, she was a landmark uh, music teacher. And he used to practice. Uh, and so she would say, a trumpet player, he would say, she would say to him, you play as if you're playing for that little black man that sits in Chiaw Station. And he was like, I didn't know what she meant. She meant you practice as if you're practicing for the best musicians, even if there's nobody around. And even if you, you don't even know who that little man is, that man might be a musical genius. You, But you don't ever slack off in your practice because you think that, oh, the people who count aren't listening. And he used that little story to then write a whole essay about it's the people who are around that you never think about who know the most about it. He told a little story about, he said, I was at the New York Metropolitan Opera and I heard these men debating over who was the best alto, who, who had the language the best in terms of the German and how they pronounced. And, I, and when I saw them, I realized it was the guys who moved the scenery at the New York Metropolitan Opera. Why? They had heard all these operas countless times over and over, and they knew more about the nuance than the critics who were writing in the newspaper. I mean, so, so on the judge and them, Hercules and them, of course they knew the rules because the rules, number one, had an impact on their lives. And number two, they were sitting there literally around these people who are making this enterprise up. So when judging them, you know, she gets away. I'm not going back to Virginia. So she makes a move. Hercules and them, they make a move. George Washington is furious. He's writing because they, they, they find out she's in New England. He's writing letters up there, let, make her come back. She's, she writes back to him and says, yeah, I'll come back on this condition. Free me, free my children. He's like, you're crazy. Well, I'm not coming back then. I mean, this correspondence is going back. But the reason I bring all that up is because on a judge, Hercules, all those Africans that George Washington had enslaved were at the president's house right there across the street from Independence Hall. And when they decided they were going to restore some monument to the president's house, Black people, we all went down there, created something called Avenging the Ancestors Coalition. Uh, my man, Mike Cord, who's a lawyer in Philadelphia, and a bunch of other Black folks all got together. And we protested until eventually the National Park Service and them had to concede. So when you go to Philly now, you got Independence Hall, across the little street, you have where the Liberty Bell is. That Liberty Bell has a pavilion now, and then they have the footprint of the president's house. But before you get into the footprint, there's this whole tribute to the enslaved Africans who resisted with their pictures, with their stories, with what life was like for Africans in Philadelphia at the beginning of the founding of the Republic, so to speak. And it's all due to Black people who said, no, you're going to tell our ancestors' story because we weren't down with what went on. The reason I bring all that up is because on July 4th, what I used to see around the back of Independence Hall now takes place in that little pavilion where the Liberty Bell is. Before they start the ceremony, they would bring out children. I'm talking about children, five, six, 13-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 10-year-olds. And they would have, you know, their summer clothes on. And, and then you would see a couple with white gloves on. And then they would announce, this is now, if you didn't know this was going to happen, this might happen like an hour before the big ceremony with the mayor and everybody else on the other side. But I would go around there and you would see this little group, maybe 100, 150 people. And then this little group would come out and they would say, uh, these are the descendants of the signer of the Declaration of Independence. These are children. These are little white children. I'm saying, I'm looking at them like, what? Okay, you're a six-year-old. What you know about John Hancock? What you know about, what? No, oh yeah, oh, those records. Oh yeah, no, no, I am a descendant. And then they would give one of them a mallet, a little soft mallet, like you put on a timpani drum, 
with a you know furry head mallet and very lightly with those white gloves on they hit the liberty bell i saw that with my own eyes <laughs> so i'm saying for all y'all think this is like oh you know that was a long time ago founding fathers yeah a man ain't never gave birth to a child so even the idea of a founding father is i mean this idea this patriarchy a word just now you know what i'm saying I mean, so i mean you just you, you think about it and this just comes down through time and space so anyway then they would start the ceremony so i would bring my douglas and i would read it because to myself while i'm watching this because the only black people who would be there on July 4th when they read the Declaration of Independence, which includes the language that they accused George III of stirring up insurrections among them, the insurrections they accused him. So of course, when, you know, when the thing, when we read the Declaration of Independence, you hear, uh, they would read the, they always read the Declaration of Independence at these ceremonies. So one of the things that the uh, colonists accused George III of doing was stirring up domestic uh, dissent and rebellion against the colonists. But the people they were referring to in the colonies that they accused the British of stirring resentment up and, and rebellion up among were the Native Americans and the Black people. So, because in other words, I mean, you know, Gerald Horn writes about all this in his book, uh, The, um, the Counter-Revolution of 1776. Because basically what Gerald says is that if you go back to Somerset's case, which is the early 1770s in England, Somerset's case in, in a sentence a black man in England said, you can't enslave me because there's no positive law. There's no rule on the book in England that says I should be enslaved. The courts agree. They said, it's not that you can't enslave black people in England, but you have to write a law to enslave them. And since there is no law, it's not in natural law that you can just have slavery. Well, Gerald, who was also a lawyer and, and a PhD, Gerald, who's written, in fact, there's one shelf back here that's nothing but Gerald Horn books. It's about maybe- what? Well, that's I only put two dozen of them right there. He didn't wrote, he's written close to 40. So, but one of those books is the, in fact, if I could get it in 10 seconds. Oh yeah, I'll show it to you. This man always it got it at the- Here it is. The, the, the counter-revolution. No, what is it about you? No, okay. Now this is the book you want to get. Okay. Gerald Horn is not a joke. He says, slave resistance and the origins of the United States of America. Gerald's thesis is, and, and, and you kind of get a gloss of this, in the 1619 project, but it, you know, like everything else you did on white institutions, you don't want to put the pedal to the metal all the way. Gerald puts it all the way down. Horn says, no, after Somerset's case, especially, the British are considering how do we perhaps bring these black people in differently? Because remember, the Native Americans are a different story. They're, they're sovereign nations, which actually ties to where we are now because the Logala Sioux were like the, I'm sorry, the Lakota. Sue is not even a name. It's kind of a slur they would use. The Lakota people, they said, Trump, you're not welcome here. These Black Hills belong to us. Y'all broke these treaties years ago. This ain't even your land. But they, they're, they're sovereign nations. So that was a different kind of thing. But the British are like, these Africans who we enslaved, we could actually make them subjects of the crown, perhaps. And if we armed them, we could put down these insurrections among these white boys. So Horn's thing is, part of the reason they had to have a revolution it wasn't really a revolution. It was a counter-revolution. Why? Because we got to get away from these British. So even if you read the Declaration of Independence, July 4, 1776, it says among there, one of the things they accused George III of, hey, man, you stirring up problems with us among these people we got over here enslaved. And so to hear it every July 4, read there at Independence Hall, and to hear everybody cheering, including the eight Negroes who are down there who don't really realize what they just heard, I'm like, I'm reading Frederick Douglass looking at the stage, 
And, you know, Philadelphia has had black mayors. So John Street was mayor, Michael Nutter was mayor. But more often than not, it was white mayors. Ed Rendell, Jim Kenney is there now. So Douglas would always say, they that carried us off captive required of us a song. And I would read, what did the slaves for July to myself? Look at that stage. And if it wasn't a black elected official, it was the only other black people on that stage were the black choir. And all those people there, I'm black. I can look over and see maybe a couple of people from the National Park Service, maybe Philly policemen, and maybe three other black people in this crowd of hundreds of people. And when they dedicated the Constitution Center, thousands. And I'm saying, it ain't no black people out here. Douglas would be like, yeah, this is the day that reminds you, you're not part of how they think of themselves. And if you look at, if we looked at South Dakota on Friday night, you couldn't see any black people, which is kind of a blessing because ain't nobody had no mask on. The bands, the Air Force band, the little army, the reserve band they had. Mary Hart. You see that? Oh, oh my God, Mary Hart, they done dug up. Now, I didn't, who, I didn't know she was from South Dakota. She was so pleased to be there talking about fishing and all this stuff. And you standing there in the shadow of the Black Hills and you say to yourself, my God, Douglas again speaks from the ancestorhood and says, this is the moment when you realize this ain't got nothing to do with you. And in fact, this is where Mount Rushmore's history just really just, let's summarize it very quickly. The head of George Washington at Mount Rushmore was dedicated in 1930. So it's not that old. But the guy who sculpted it, uh, the guy whose vision was for Mount Rushmore, a guy named uh, Gutlow Borgum, B-O-R-G-L-U-M, Borgum. This guy, when I tell you Mount Rushmore was designed to be a tribute to imperialism, settler colonialism and taking the whole continent from the Native Americans. That was what was literally in his mind. In fact, there's a great book called Great White Fathers, John Taliaferro. He wrote the history, Taliaferro wrote the history of Mount Rushmore and Great White Fathers. And he says, you know, when they started this project, they started this project during the Great Depression. The depression hit shortly after, thereafter. And so the idea was, it, it gave people inspiration. People contributed money. People put all their little resources in. Why? Because this is going to inspire us. And Borglum was what they call a Roosevelt Republican when he started off his work. It's very interesting to see. Because Borglum, you wouldn't think of like a, a Roosevelt Republican as necessarily being an overt racist. But here's the problem. Oh, Borglum was from Iowa. His, his parents were Mormons. In fact, he he, he had his mother uh, had a co-wife. I mean, they had a whole thing with the Mormons, and this is very interesting, dude. But here's the thing about Borgman. <laughs> in 1915, in 1915, on the top of Stone Mountain in Georgia, they had a ceremony around Thanksgiving. Who is they? The Ku Klux Klan. Who, who dedicated to reviving themselves because they were founded in 1866 in Pulaski, Tennessee. Uh, what was the guy's name? It'll come to me in a minute anyway. Um, but at any rate, they had a resurgence in the first part of the 20th century. We're talking about Woodrow Wilson, who's president, screened Birth of a Nation in the White House, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. In 1915, they had this big ritual on top of Stone Mountain with a Bible, flame and cross, put the sword over the Bible. Yeah, we, we are now going to revive the, the Klan. 
they decided reviving the clan ain't enough. We're gonna carve some, we're gonna create a Confederate monument in the side of this stone mountain. So they decide they're gonna build a monument. It's gonna be the biggest monument in America, maybe the biggest in the world. It is still to this day the largest bass relief carving in the world. And who did they go get? Who did they contract with? In fact, oh, now this one right here. This is the history of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. That's volume one and volume two. That's the centennial edition. I got the older edition too, but I, I, I use the centennial edition. Here's volume three, take from 1956 to 1986. If you wanna know the fingerprints behind all these monuments, all these medals, all this Confederate propaganda around the country, get these two volumes. Why? Because these are the women who are responsible for them statues, for all that stuff. And in these volumes, they tell on themselves. So at any rate, the United Daughters of the Confederacy approach who? Gutlow Borglum. And they say, man, we heard you're a great sculptor. What you think about this? We want to make Confederate monument on the side of Stone Mountain, Georgia. Can you help us? Borglum sketches out a vision of Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, Jefferson Davis, several other major Confederate leaders and generals leading fully full on horses, leading thousands of other Confederates across Stone Mountain in this parade of history that they then put on the side of the mountain. The United Daughters of the Confederacy gonna raise this money now. And what do they say? We love it. We love it. Do it. So Borkland starts work on what we now know as Stone Mountain, Georgia. The Klan star raising money. The UDC is raising money. But then he takes a call around 1925 from the people at Mount Rushmore. The guy's good. So he says, uh, you know, we'd like to what you think about a, a Mount Rushmore monument? Now, mind you, this guy been working with the Confederacy, the United Dollars of Confederacy, Klan support to build this Confederate monument in Georgia. They call him from South Dakota, and he says, yeah, I could do that. This is what I would do. I would have George Washington. I would have Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, you know, uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, because I like Roosevelt and we would have them full bodied. And then we would also then have a hall where we would put all the great people in, uh, in American history who represent the march of America across the continent as we get rid of these savages and create. And so the people at Mount Rushmore are like, oh, that's a good idea. Okay, so let's start. The Klan finds out. February, 1925, they fire Borglum. Borglum is fired from working on Stone Mountain and goes to Mount Rushmore. And what we see there today, what we see there today is the vision of Gutlow Borglum, a racist. Because then after they get rid of Borglum, this is how crazy this stuff is. This, this is how crazy it is. After they get rid of Borglum, what do UDC and them go out and do? They hire another sculptor, Henry Augustus Lukeman. Lukeman comes from a Jewish background. What does Borglum say? Borglum says, it's a Jew. See, they're not serious. 
because Borland's a racist. <laughs> he racist against the Jews too, the Catholics, the Jews, everybody. He like, see, they're not serious. They got it. But it takes them, it, they have a 40 year hiatus before they bring in Walker Kirkland Hancock in 19, he finished, Hancock comes in in the 60s and finishes. Now they've shrunk down uh, Borglum's vision. In fact, after they fired Borglum, they wipe his work off the mountain and start again, except they're starting from his vision, but they just shrunk it down. So you ever see Stone Mountain, you still see those generals there with their torsos and everything, but it ain't the thousands of people around them, but it's still lined up the way that Borglum had envisioned it. In fact, look at Stone Mountain, look at Mount Rushmore, you can get a sense of that same march of history ethos. So what they do is they wipe it, they start again, they still got his vision, but when Kirk Hancock comes in, Hancock, boy, I tell you, American history, see, this is the thing, people talk about getting rid of the Confederate flags, and they say, oh, Mississippi got rid of the, this the last one, the Confederate flag. See, you, no, no. Have you ever seen the flag of Alabama? The flag of Alabama is white with the stars and bars in red. Why y'all acting like you can't see? Do you understand? The flag of my home state, Tennessee, that's a flag that's red with three uh, white stars in the middle of a blue field. They took the Confederate flag and adapted the colors and shapes to all their flags. The only one that don't riff on that really is ironically the first state to secede from the Union, South Carolina. Theirs is blue with a palmetto and a crescent moon. But the other flags, them red, white, and blue flags, yeah, like the American flag, which is why when you look at Mount Rushmore, understand that the underlying cultural ethos of Mount Rushmore is the same ethos as Stone Mountain, Georgia, the Confederate monument, because they both are grounded in the idea that the white race is superior. That's why Talia Foyer named his book, Great White Fathers. So when we talk about that, and so what happens is they, they, they give it over to Hancock. This is Stone Mountain now, he's in the 60s. Hancock was one of, remember that movie um, with George Clooney and uh, John Goodman, when they went over in World War II to get the treasures from the Nazis, monuments. Me. Glorious Bastard. No, Inglorious Bastards was one too. That's where you know, Quentin Tarantino, who loves rewriting history, right? As if that stuff was real. Yeah, no, nah, Brad Pittman was in that one, but oh, this is the well, one. John Goodman. Yeah, it's called Monuments Men. Monuments, yes. Monuments Men. Remember that? And they're heroes because they're going to save the Nazi, tre the treasures that the Nazis stole from the Jews and everybody else in, in Europe. And so they're over there. The Americans send them over there to document all the stuff that's been stolen. And in fact, Black people need Monuments Men too now because you know the big thing now with continental Julia, Africans. Yeah, African and, and the freaking Sotheby's and Christie's or God. The British are like, yeah, you can borrow the stuff we stole from you or will you, you, you can, right once you create a, a museum that meets our standards right that's some i mean come on in fact the brother chike uh the, the art historian i was reading some of the new york times last on week. my show a couple of weeks ago oh you had him i gotta go back and find it yeah 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 i'm gonna post i'm gonna post that video yeah please please Amazing. do and y'all watch that please because yeah. he was hot and righteously Ooh. so in yeah, the paper yeah. how y'all gonna tell me it, you know, because they, they, they just sold this thing, the French dude, right? They say, you stole this during the Biafran War. I'm Nigerian. Let me tell you, that's what they call the Brothers War in Nigeria. That's, that's, that rips the heart of Nigerians to this day. And y'all looted a piece of art that's sacred to Igbo people, and it's sitting up here in France, and then you put it on uh, auction after I told y'all, after we told y'all where it came from, y'all talking about, well, we have no evidence that it was looted. Y'all criminals. That's exactly right. So, so, so this dude, Hancock, was one of the monuments men, so-called monuments men that everybody praises, who went and, and tallied these, uh, these, uh, these looted treasures in Europe. 
He's also the guy that finished Stone Mountain, Georgia, the Confederate monument, known as the Confederate monument. But here's the thing that, um, let me see, is this the one? Yeah, this is 56 to 86. So he's there May 9th, 1970, when they dedicate Stone Mountain, Georgia, with Vice President of the United States Spiro T. Spiro T. Agnew as principal speaker, a Stone Mountain commemorative stamp was issued by the United States Post Office. These are Confederates. These are traitors to the United States. So Walker Hancock got the job done. And I should read one other thing, Karen. You appreciate this in New York, New Jersey, especially. Remember, I said they fired Borglum, Borglum who then went on to, to, to build uh, now, of course, Mount Rushmore. But when they fired him, they had a, a lull of four decades trying to get the money up to finish Stone Mountain. Watch this. This is page 246, volume two of the United Daughters of the Confederacy's history. This chapter seems to be the proper place to which to record the astounding story of one of the most unique gifts in the history of the United, of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. 9,000 Stone Mountain Memorial half dollars. And this is what happens. The president of the president general of the United of the United Daughters of Confederacy in 1955 opens her door at her house, and the courier delivers five bags of silver coins. Where did these bags come from? The mint. Well, they're memorial dollars, Stone Mountain memorial half dollars. They're legitimate currency that were printed to raise money for Stone Mountain, but somebody had had them. For 40 years. Oh, well, you, you had them, Karen. The gift was from Mr. Bernard Baruch of New York. Ever heard of Baruch? Baruch College. Baruch College is who this, who's named for this guy right here. Mr. Bernard Baruch of New York, financier, big money dude, the guy for whom Baruch College is named. In memory of his mother, who in her lifetime was an honored member of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Bernard Baruch is from South Carolina. Jewish family, South Carolina, racist. Let me send y'all these because in the years since they were printed, they worth a whole lot more. And I'm trying to give y'all some money to help raise money for this headquarters y'all trying to build in Richmond, Virginia. And y'all use some of that money for Stone Mountain, Georgia. <laughs> At some point, we're going to have to talk about the, the, the history of the sellout. You know. Come on. I mean, from Nazi Germany, you know, funded, Hitler funded some of that money from Jewish people to, you know, we, we were talking off, you know, off mic, on mic, Van Jones, these other people, you know, Candace Owens, all these other people. But there's a deep history of people selling out their own people. And, it, people. and, and to be a Jewish racist, to, to fund a Confederacy situation and to be in New York, I mean, it's just it. It's, we we're gonna pause right here. Well, well, I should say I should say one thing though. Finishing up, Borglum died in 1941. This is after they dedicated the George Washington head. They got the George Washington head done by 1930. He doesn't finish. They eventually complete Stone Mountain in 1970. Now, mind you, this is where we're gonna end. Wait, wait, pause. Stone Mountain or or Mount Rushmore. I'm sorry. Stone Mountain was finished in 1970. Mount Rushmore. They after he dies. They quickly then pause his huge vision. So by the 1940s, you've got what it's going to look like. Okay. But here's the problem. Well, not the problem. 
last night when they were showing Air Force One, you could see Mount Rushmore. You see all the pictures of Mount Rushmore, all the boss relief pictures. What you don't see is a sculpture that was started nearby by one of the men who worked on Mount Rushmore when Borglum was there. This dude's name is Korzak Zilikowski. Korzak Zilikowski, immigrant from Europe, is on that mountain. And when they're working on Mount Rushmore, guess who's watching? The people you stole the land from. The people who you had a treaty for said, it's y'all land till they found gold in the Black Hills. Then y'all bogarted them. The Lagala Sioux, the Lakota, the Ogala Lakota. The same Ogala Lakota who said the other day, Donald Trump is not welcome here. They're watching as they're carving Mount Rushmore. So guess what? <laughs> Chief Standing Bear. Chief Standing Bear approaches this guy, Kowalski, and says, you know what? We want you to work on a monument for us. Yeah, what? Yeah, so they finished Mount Rushmore. The, the Lakota people, who we call the Sioux, then contract with this dude who dies, then his wife takes over, then the children take over to build the Crazy Horse Memorial. Mm. There is the, the head of Crazy yeah. Horse is 88 feet. It's looking right at Mount Rushmore. When completed, the Crazy Horse Memorial will be 641 feet long, 563 feet high. Crazy Horse is sitting on his horse pointing at Mount Rushmore like, get off my land. It dwarfs Mount Rushmore. Mind you, you know, Crazy Horse is the dude that gave Custer his scalp at Little Bighorn. And at the foot of the Crazy Horse Memorial is already what they call the Indian Museum of North America. But I love what Standing Bear told this guy before he said, we want, to work, we want you to work for us. He said, let the white man know the red man has great heroes too. Ha. Now, how, how they could cut out the Crazy Horse head from all those pictures of Mount Rushmore. No, nah, but don't worry, because when it's done, we taking this back. Standing Bear took care of that 80, 90 years ago. So I just thought, I mean, really, it's just a beautiful thing. That is, that is amazing. All right, well, so class, uh, I've learned, I got five more books. Uh, you, <laughs> somebody said they're gonna go broke messing with you with these books, but you know, it's so important. I never would have picked up the Daughters of Confederate, uh, the United, the history of United Daughters of Confederates. I never would have picked that book up. Volume one, two, three, or I never would have done that. No, that you got us going down these rabbit holes of obscurity, <laughs> but also, you know, Mr. Gerald Hall, uh, Horn. Yeah. I didn't hear about him till the, so let me just thank you again because it's, it's more than breadcrumbs, it's, it's nourishment. And the more we know, the more we should want to know. So yes. I, I love you. So much. Love you too, sis. So Listen, thank you. This platform, you getting it to the people. I mean, regular folks, and we have to understand, most of our people don't get a chance to go to college. We send our children, we come when we take classes, but this kind of thing, this is where it's supposed to be. We supposed to be teaching and learning and educating each other. So I want to thank you, Karen, for making this space, for keeping this space, for growing this space. And those, everybody listening and, and observing and having this conversation in the comments, y'all got to support this. And let me, let me just also say, I, I posted a video about, you know, how I feel about people on social media, particularly YouTube comments. And yeah, stuff. I saw it. Some people got in their feelings about it, but I'm like, if I'm not talking about you, you know, we're trying to build a culture here of learning and growing. And, yeah. and if you're just here to criticize, you're not welcome. So I just want to just, this is a particular kind of, of, of space and, and I created it so that we can be like family. Yes, we can disagree. You could not like some things. You could not like some people. But what we're not going to do is denigrate and, and destroy folks verbally in comments because we can't. So uh, no, if you didn't like what I had to say, do better. 
That's it. Right. Uh, that's, right. it. that's that's easy. Old yeah. folks, you say in the south, the hit dog hollers. So I mean, if you wasn't hit, you shouldn't be hollering. Here I'm is. not hollering. I thought it was. I thought it was beautiful. I love what you said. Thank you. All right, Dr. Carr, follow him at Africana Carr. Subscribe because we do want you to subscribe because that does matter. Give the thumbs up because that does matter. Follow him at Africana Carr on Twitter. I'm at, at Karen Hunter on Twitter. Please. We'll see y'all next week. Thank you, Dr. Carr. See you next week. <laughs>